This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Iran takes prisoners again, and America gives billions of dollars again. Did the attempt to overthrow the U.S. government occur on January 6, 2021, or on January 5, 2017? Tyranny, oppression, and brainwashing in Russia, a thing of the past? What is the real Europe? And a roundtable discussion, why natural disasters? All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, August 11th. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet Riders. In studio are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. And in our studio in Britain are Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Uh, this week, Mihailo, we'll start with you. Give us an update on your region, which is the Middle East. Yeah, it's been a pretty busy week in the Middle East, as it usually is, if uh, people have been able to tell from most of my intros. Um on Monday, the United Arab Emirates and China announced they will hold joint military exercises. Uh, that'll happen later this year. Um, there's uh, a couple big things with that. For one, uh, the UAE is nominally an American ally, or at least a military partner. So the fact that they're holding drills with China is uh, quite significant. It's a, uh, a little break from the United States. And they're also holding exercises in the region of Xinjiang, which, as longtime followers of the Trumpet would know, is where uh, po- populated by a Muslim uh, ethnic group called the Uyghurs, and China has been for years conducting genocide against them. So the fact that the Emirates is willing to hold exercises there of all places, I think, just goes to show how much little the Muslim world and even the wider world in general cares about the plight of the, of the Uyghurs. On Thursday, Haaretz, which is Israel's main left-wing paper, uh, had a piece quoting several Democratic senators, specifically uh, Chris Van Hollen of Maryland and Tim Kaine of Virginia, uh, about the Israel-Saudi Arabia peace process. There's been a lot of talk about um, uh, the United States brokering a deal between those two countries, but the Senate just came out uh, saying that there's going to be no uh, peace deal without Israel conceding on the Palestinian issues. Israel, of course, has made a few, a little bit of progress the last few years, especially under Donald Trump, reaching out to countries like the UAE, like Bahrain, uh, making peace deals without, shall we say, giving ground to the Palestinians. Um, this and this different administration it looks like uh, the opposite tactic is going to be used. Instead of helping bringing peace w- between Israel and these different countries, they're using these uh, the peace deals with the Arabs to weaken Israel and to marginalize it. We'll certainly keep up with that. And then finally, we didn't cover it on the program last week, but last Friday, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed declared a state of emergency over an insurgency in Ethiopia's Amhara region. Ethiopia, of course, has been suffering from civil war for quite a while now. This is a new front and potentially could explode even more so than the war they had with the Tigray from a few years back. We'll, again, keep an eye on that as well. So you weren't kidding. There are uh, quite a few uh, things in motion there in the Middle East uh, that United Arab Emirates uh, location, like you said, for the military exercise is just is a remarkable. I hope that uh, we can follow up on that in the future in the Asia re- region or the or the um, Middle East region, because uh, that is 
very significant. And then, like you said, the uh, Israel-Saudi situation is is not a minor issue, but you've got us focusing in on Iran for your biggest story. Yes. Yeah, so yesterday, the United States government announced that they're going to be holding a prison swap with Iran. Um, this is still a lot that isn't known. What we do know is that five American prisoners are going to, or Iranian-American dual nationals imprisoned in Iran are going to be swapped with five Iranians imprisoned in the United States. We know the identity of three of the five. Um, they're all char uh, charged in Iran for espionage. Uh, whether that's true or not, we don't know at this point. The two other prisoners haven't uh, been identified, but sources told the New York Times that one is a scientist and the other is a businessman. And they're reportedly being swapped with, uh, again, five Iranians in the U.S. serving time for violating sanctions against Iran. So this is a prisoners for cash situation, it seems like, and it's not the first time we've seen something like this. Yeah, there's a... Uh... Um, the deal uh, uh, also unfreezes about $6 billion worth of Iranian assets in South Korea. Now, Iran has been sort of nagging on the United States to unfreeze these assets uh, for a few months now in the Biden uh, government's rapprochement with Iran. As you mentioned, this isn't something that's that new. Uh, during Barack Obama's time, he became notorious uh, for uh taking in American hostages. In those cases, uh, the people like uh, kidnapped sailors and whatnot in exchange for billions of dollars worth of sanctions relief. The government is, uh, the U.S. government, I should say, is downplaying how important this is, that, well, it's theirs anyway, and it's for humanitarian purposes. Like Iran's ever been completely honest with taking all these billions for humanitarian purposes and never funneled it away from uh, to military. And the middleman in all this is Qatar. Uh, who's supposed to regulate how Iran uses it. Qatar sponsors terrorists as well. They sponsor Hamas. They sponsored Al-Qaeda. Al like, they're going to live up to their end of the bargain either. Um, the the deal hasn't technically happened yet, so we'll wait and see if any bumps in the road take place. But for now, it looks like it's good to go. This has happened before, like you said, and, uh, and we've seen uh, the United States of all nations uh, aid Iran of all nations with billions of dollars. Uh, but let's not get used to it. <laughs> it's happened before, but it's just as outrageous. It's just as insane as it was the first time uh, when it made a lot more waves. But uh, after what we've seen in the Obama presidency and, and now the Obama third term under Biden, uh, it's becoming commonplace. But that doesn't make it any less outrageous uh, for the United States to be involved in this at all. Uh, but wh where, where do you see this leading? Where would you have us uh, kind of direct our attention for what we're looking to uh, be the ultimate outcome? Well, this particular swap is interesting because, uh, as I've talked about on this program before, there's the stories of the unofficial Iran nuclear deal floating around. The U.S. is denying that it's taking place. But from the reports we can gather from sources like Israeli intelligence, from what Iranians have said, uh, part of the deal includes the United States lifting sanctions and organizing a prisoner swap, which is exactly what we're seeing right now. So even as the U.S. denies any of this is happening or the nuclear deal is happening, they're fulfilling their terms of what we do know about the nuclear deal, uh, which it's chilling to, to say the least to, on how much 
this nuclear deal is being pushed forward and the public is being kept in the dark about it as much as possible. We've talked a lot on this program on Iran obtaining nuclear weapons. One prophecy that factors into that is Matthew 24 verses 21 to 22 that talk about in our time today, just before the return of Christ, is going to be a crisis so bad that unless if it was stopped, no single human being would be saved alive. This is talking about nuclear weapons. This is talking about weapons of mass destruction. And Iran getting nuclear weapons helps bring that prophecy closer more and more every day. If our listeners would like a resource, I would recommend Chapter 6 of our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Fleury's book, Great Again. That's Chapter 6, and it's entitled The Most Dangerous Lie in History. talks a bit about the nuclear deal and why it's so important, a lot more important than most other developments in the world. Uh, So that's a good resource for our listeners to go to. We are living in the era for the first time in human history where it is possible for no flesh to be saved alive. And that is true. And when you look at who would be the most, you know, some of the most dangerous possessors and users of weapons of mass destruction, Iran certainly uh, near the top of that list. Uh, That was great again, which is actually the companion booklet to America Under Attack. Now let's go to some related news from the Anglo-America region from Andrew Miller. In the Anglo-America region, a new report from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction has revealed that the Biden administration has handed over $2.5 billion to Taliban-controlled Afghanistan since its disastrous evacuation two years ago. Also, a police investigation found proof of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election in Muskegon, Michigan. And those stories and uh, Mihailo's story are all, in a way, related to your main story for this week that you've uh, given me a heads up on. What's that main story? Yeah, my main story is about Barack Obama, and it's actually uh, about a meeting I've touched upon in the past trumpet hour, but which we got a lot more detail this week. Um, The investigative journalist Lee Smith Uh, published an article for the tablet titled Obama's January 5th Conspiracy. Uh, And the article, uh, it starts out with focusing on a meeting that occurred this year on um, June 27th. So a little while ago, not necessarily breaking news. The article's breaking news. (laughs) But but in this meeting on June 27th, and I believe I've mentioned it before, it's like Barack Obama met with Joe Biden at the White House. Uh, and this was summarized by the Washington Post. Uh, actually, they have an interesting way of phrasing it. The Washington Post says Obama was visiting the White House uh, for what Biden aides described as a regular catch-up meeting between the two men who served at the White House together for eight years. So something that Obama, apparently he regularly drops by the White House for lunch with Biden. Uh, and on June 27th, he was on one of those regular uh meetings and he promised to do all he could to help biden get re-elected according to two people familiar with the meeting uh, but stressed to biden that he (laughs) he didn't want biden to take this too hard i guess he's like he's like i don't have concern about your political abilities which he might (laughs) he said but he's like i don't want you or other democrats to underestimate how formidable a candidate Donald Trump is. He said Donald Trump's got an iron grip on the Make America Great Again movement uh, and a pretty strong grip on the Republican Party. He's more popular than Democrats think. 
Uh, he's got a very good chance at winning the next election. Biden's not going to be able to take him take down Trump on his own in Obama's opinion. Uh, so he's like, he's like, I'm definitely going to have to be involved in this campaign if there's going to be any chance for you to take down Trump in 2024. So that's the June meeting. But what is this? What is what are these details from this January 5th, 2017 meeting? Yeah, because that's the interesting thing is like Lee uh, Lee Smith came in and he's writing about this meeting and the, the quip to his article, it's, it's called Obama's January 5th conspiracy. Uh, and the quip is Trump's problem and America's isn't the deep state. It's his predecessor or it's Obama. Obama controls the deep state. And he's um, drawing the connective tissue that this meeting isn't just like Obama came out of retirement to help his good buddy Joe uh, win the 2024 election. He said this, said, this is actually uh, not a new development, but the continuation of something that started um back in 2017 and he talks about this january 5th meeting which our editor-in-chief mr gerald flurry really draws a lot of attention to in his uh, in his book america under attack where on january 5th 2017 that's about three weeks before trump took the oath of office obama met in the oval office with top law enforcement officials including deputy attorney general sally yates fbi director james comey uh joe biden national security advisor susan susan rice john brennan the cia director was already uh, was was there as well and they were discussing in this meeting uh how to continue investigating trump for russia collusion once trump was in charge of the government uh which is treasonous i mean th th that point comes out strongly in america under attack that like <laughs> it's unorthodox to investigate your political rival when you're in power but to actually continue doing it when he's the commander-in-chief is you're now trying to subvert your new boss so this is a this is a treasonous conspiracy and lee smith points out here this i said and um we know from other documents that said Obama knew the FBI investigation was phony from the outset because CIA director John Brennan told him so several days before the FBI opened its Trump probe that the story tying the Republican candidate to Russia was a Hillary Clinton campaign ploy to vilify her opponent. So uh, Hillary Clinton came up with this phony dossier tying Trump to Russia. Um, <laughs> maybe Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were in this together maybe they weren't we don't know that for sure uh but we do know um that by midsummer uh, 2016 john brennan the cia director had found out what clinton was up to um and told obama about it <laughs> and instead of doing the good thing and calling clinton and telling her to stop being a scumbag uh he decided to put the fbi uh resources at her disposal as well and continue using this phony dossier to take down donald trump and then through all the trump years you've got two impeachment scandals you've got the Mueller investigation you've got all these attempts to take down trump being masterminded by obama's fbi and obama's cia uh cia uh so he was involved in the attempts to undermine trump's presidency before trump was even president uh, then he was involved in the attempts to rig the 2020 election as well uh, and install Biden. And now he's continuing to be. He's meeting with Biden saying, well, I'm going to continue to be involved to make sure Trump doesn't win in 2024. 
And so that's really Lee Smith's point here is like Politico is making this seem, uh, not Politico, sorry, uh, Washington Post. Uh, Washington Post making this seem like, oh, Trump's a formidable candidate. So Obama's coming out of retirement to help his, uh, to help his old friend. Um, and then Lee Smith's making the case like, no, he's never went into retirement. He's been the mastermind behind the campaign to get rid of Donald Trump for like six years now. Um, and so this is this is the latest development uh, in the Trump versus <laughs> uh, Obama civil war, cold civil war in America. But it's uh, it's definitely something that's been happening for at least six years. And it's not something that just came out of nowhere. When we were preparing the show, you pointed to a prophecy, 2 Kings 14, 26 through 28, which is featured in the book America Under Attack. Uh, you've heard of the January 6th insurrection over and over. What about the January 5th sedition? Uh, we've got a wildly outrageous nuclear deal that Obama pushed through. You have another wildly outrageous nuclear deal apparently in the works uh, right now. And when we, and as you've said, we're, we're finding out more and more about Obama. We're finding out more and more about Barack Obama planning in the White House with the very top of the deep state apparatus to to take down his successor, his his constitutionally voted uh, elected successor. And now even without Obama in the White House officially, except possibly for regular lunches and except for the fact that his staff literally is in the White House, uh, having taken over from some Biden staff uh, when, when the uh, Biden government came in there the biden regime and now people are saying now people are recognizing it's not just the deep state this sort of faceless entity uh, that's existed for some time but it's barack obama specifically and like lee smith writes there he never did go into retirement don't think of it that way he has been active this entire time we focused on barack obama in the wednesday show uh we highlighted that article from the tablet which I think is where Lee Smith often writes as well, but it was by a different author. Uh, and that uh, article was The Obama Factor. So if you'd like to uh, get into this, then I would recommend looking at that. There is so much going on in this country, and Obama is the deciding factor. And that's in America Under Attack, as you cited. And I'm even looking at the original 2013 edition of America Under Attack. And uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry pinpointed that particular man as the epicenter, the factor, the deciding factor uh, in this attack on America that now everybody can see and now more people are seeing it uh, in motion uh, and seeing who it who is who has set it in motion, who's keeping it in motion. And then speaking of that book booklet, it's, of course, been expanded in 2022 and then expanded again in 2023 into a very uh, hefty book. We've promoted it several times on this show. Chapter 5 in that in that expanded version is called Silencing a Critic, and it's about uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. And that's one of the—of all the many, many things that you could zero in on in this sedition, this treason that's that's been roiling in the United States— this is one thing that uh, Mr. Flurry devoted an entire chapter to. I just checked it, and the name Flynn is mentioned 86 times, <laughs> including in the uh, index. 
in this book. And the book isn't about Flynn, but that chapter is. And of course, uh, you might know already, but uh, General Flynn is coming to the trumpet offices here in Edmond on August 21st, so that's in 10 days, to uh, to give a, a lecture here. And uh, you can learn more about that on thetrumpet.com. We are hoping that that lecture might live stream as well, but we don't have confirmation on that yet. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour, where we now go to the Asia region. Jeremiah Jacques, what have been the stories that have stood out in Asia this week? Well, first, there's been a significant escalation in tensions between China and the Philippines. With uh, China, it seems like they're just entering a new level of aggression in this ridiculous and utterly unlawful claim to Philippine maritime territory. So there's a shoal, it's 124 miles from the Philippine coast, that's well within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. Um, And the Philippines actually stations a small garrison of soldiers there. Meanwhile, this same shoal is 620 miles from China's coast, yet China says that since a Chinese soldier apparently sailed by there a couple of hundred years ago, they own this uh, this territory forever. Their logic is utterly bankrupt. I think even the Chinese don't really believe their logic. But over the last few days, the Chinese Coast Guard have been firing water cannons at Philippine vessels near this shoal and maneuvering in dangerous ways near the Philippine ships as well. And uh, the Chinese are demanding that the Philippines leave this shoal and give it back to China. So far, the Philippines, they're standing up admirably, I think, to the Chinese. And the United States has... Uh, you know, reminded China that we have the Philippines back under the Mutual Defense Treaty if any hostilities break out. But China is undeterred by this, and the situation could escalate quickly. Another quick China story here. New data paints a very dark picture for the nation's economy. In July, Chinese exports plunged 14.5% in year-over-year terms, and imports for the same time dropped 12.4%. If you look just at China's exports to the U.S., they fell by uh, more than 23%, and exports to the EU fell 20.6%. So these are drastic declines, and this is even going by the numbers that the Chinese print, which, you know, you have to take that with a big pinch of MSG, I suppose. But, uh, But it means that China is far from recovering from all of its COVID lockdowns, and while the rest of the world is struggling with inflation, the Chinese are now facing serious deflation. One analyst summed this up nicely this week, saying, the Chinese system has been staring down the barrel of a number of serious challenges for quite a while now, and this new economic data just took the safety off that gun. Another one here about China and Russia, the navies of the two countries have just conducted large naval drills near the coast of Alaska. There were uh, 11 warships involved here, and they didn't come into America's territorial waters, but it was quite close. And it shows, I think, just how provocative Russia and China are becoming and how uh, tightly aligned the two of them are as well. Another one here about Russia, a man named Arkady Volos. He's a Russian billionaire who founded Russia's main search engine. He's almost viewed as like Russia's Steve Jobs, something like that. This week, he spoke out in the starkest terms against Russia's war on Ukraine. He called it a barbaric invasion. 
So I think that this man should keep away from windows in the near future and not accept invitations to any of Putin's uh, tea parties. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we joke about that, but it's actually a tragic state of affairs that has silenced any independent thought or free speech in Russia and has, has really normalized state assassinations for people who don't comply. And the truth is, this was a remarkable act of bravery for this billionaire to risk everything by speaking out. And uh, there are some hopes since Volos is revered so highly in Russia that this could prompt other Russian elites to kind of start waking up a little bit. And it is a barbaric invasion. It's, he's, he's speaking the truth. It takes courage to do that, especially in that environment. But it is a barbaric invasion. It's a historically barbaric invasion. And I think when we look back in the future or, or future generations look back on this, it'll be much the same as we look back on on World War II, the Holocaust. And why didn't they do more? It was such a barbaric invasion. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what's going on in that uh, barbarism. Yeah, yes. Well, this uh, this war is still raging, this barbaric invasion, and Ukraine is still making only incremental gains, and it's happening at a very high cost to both sides. Uh, but Russia appears mostly undeterred by all those losses, and there's actually evidence that the Russian leadership is already looking ahead to later chapters of this war and even to future wars as well. And there's evidence that Russia is making sure they've got new generations of soldiers and others ready to fight for the country. So this was clear on Monday of this week when a new high school history textbook was unveiled. The Ministry of Education unveiled this book. It's for Russia's 11th graders. It's supposed to be used in all Russian high schools, and it just shamelessly omits truths, distorts facts, and, and twists logic, all to make these young Russian students see Russia's war on Ukraine, and really the world in general, through a radically pro-Kremlin lens. So the chapters covering history from the 1970s to the 2000s, those portray Russia as just a perpetual victim of Western aggression. One part of the book says, the West is fixated on destabilizing the situation within Russia. And to accomplish this, Western authorities spread undisguised Russophobia, end quote. So this is not true. You know, in truth, after the Soviet Union's collapse, Russia was given every opportunity to integrate into the U.S.-funded global order. Russia was given every chance to be stabilized and enriched within that system the way numerous countries like South Korea and Japan uh, have been. But instead, Putin's Russia chose a path of systemic corruption, unyielding victimhood, and finally, even violent expansionism. So that's one of the big themes of this book. It's just designed to fill young Russians with unwarranted rage against the West. And there are also some chapters describing Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine and the events that led up to it. These, uh, these chapters repeat, you know, the talking points of Kremlin propaganda, basically saying the Russians are there heroically risking their lives to stop what the book calls a genocide of ethnic Russians by Ukrainian, quote, Nazis. Um, it says that any civilian casualties in the war are the result of Ukrainian Nazis shelling their own people. It says over and over that Putin was forced into it all against his will because of Ukrainian aggression and aggression from NATO. The book actually calls Ukraine a, quote, ultra-nationalist state that was artificially created by the West to be used as a, quote, battering ram 
against Russia. Battering ram is the phrase that they use. So these are uh, really these are talking points that would be familiar to those who peruse Russian state media or even Western media that's been corrupted by Russian propaganda. Um, and then at one point, the book says Ukraine was about to get nuclear weapons and use them against Russia, which would have engulfed the war, the world in nuclear war. So it says Putin actually saved civilization by waging this war. The, the quote right there is, this would have been possibly the end of civilization. This could not be allowed to happen, end quote. So almost all of this is not just false, but demonstrably false. But, but you can really see why Russia does it, why, why Russia propagates these falsehoods, because it has some understandable reasons for it. Well, it's basically a good example of how the Russian government weaponizes history, or in other words, uses past events, real or imaginary, to uh, justify the Kremlin's current actions. That was the BBC's Russia editor, Vitaly Shevchenko, there. And uh, he's right about how this revision of history helps Russia justify its war. But what he didn't mention is how this goes beyond that and actually prepares young Russian minds, you know, radicalizing them, indoctrinating them, and, and just filling them with victimhood and malice so that they'll soon graduate high school and be eager to take their turn on the battlefield. And uh, it's just sad because so many of the book's claims are, you know, as, as I said, not just false, but demonstrably false. But with the government controlling what the young people are taught, most of them will believe this false version of history, and they will be eager to fight to rectify wrongs that have never actually even been committed against Russia. But this is, uh, this is significant, though, because the Bible warns about a block of Asian powers that will create a military alliance in the modern era. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written all about this block in his booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. And he says that Russia will be the lead country in this block and that Vladimir Putin will actually be the main individual holding all the power. And Mr. Flurry says this multinational power will soon be waging wars far larger and, and even more violent than what we see in Ukraine right now. So when we see Russia waging this campaign to revise history and to you know, brainwash its young people into seeing Russia's war and the world through that pro-Kremlin lens. I think we can see how this is preparing the population and just setting the stage for those future wars that Putin will lead. We read books and we go to museums and we muse on how our grandparents' generation or generations before, how could they let things like this happen? Well, those kinds of things, those that scale and that barbarity is happening now. You're living in a world where things like that you see in museums, uh, that you read about in books, uh, are happening at uh, at terrible scale. So it's it's real. This is a this is really happening. This is a world that's spinning further and further out of control. And if you if you want to understand it, you need uh, something more than just CNN and Fox News and and the rest of it. Uh, that booklet that you mentioned was The Prophesied Prince of Russia, amazingly specific, an amazingly specific claim to make about the Bible, about prophecy, and about Vladimir Putin specifically. So that's The Prophesied Prince of Russia. The fourth of our four regions, fourth but not least, is Europe. Uh, Mr. Palmer, what has been happening in Europe? In some ways, not much. August is the season where European leaders go on holiday. 
it tends to be the month where either not much happens or World War One breaks out. Um, yeah, there's a lot of invasions and things that have kicked off in in August for part of that reason. But of course, even with uh, just about every major leader are sunning themselves by the beach, there have still been some uh, significant things. So uh, one thing that really caught my eye was a couple of uh, ex heads of Germany's BND, that's their equivalent of the CIA. They had uh, an article in The Build, this is Germany's largest circulation newspaper, arguing that the German news, you know, the, the, the German intelligence service need less control and less oversight, that there's too much bureaucracy, which I found absolutely astonishing because I've actually read about some of the things that the German intelligence services have been up to. I mean, they sound like unhinged conspiracy theories. I don't think I would believe them if someone, if I heard someone on the radio talking about it. You can check. This is all true. So there was the one time where Germany's intelligence service smuggled plutonium on a commercial airline flight in order to rig a German election. That was back in 1994, and again, well-documented. There was another time where they claimed they accidentally funded, funneled large amounts of money to basically a neo-Nazi murder gang, and that one of their agents was on the scene of one of these murders. This agent didn't notice that, that their presence on the scene was an entire coincidence, and they left the room without seeing any of the blood splattering, without witnessing the murder going on, and without noticing the dead body on the floor, uh, which, I don't know, it's a pretty desperate excuse if you're saying our top, one of our top agents can literally witness a murder and not notice it. Uh, it doesn't say much about your espionage skills. Anyway, that was, um, that was back in, I think, the 2000s. 2007, they destroyed all of their files about uh, their links to, to the Nazis in World War II. So again, that's not ancient history. That's uh, that's just a few years ago. They're getting up to those kind of things. So for the these heads of the German intelligence service to be turning around and saying, "Well, the problem is we've got too much oversight and red tape," is a pretty astounding thing to claim. And you wonder, well, if those are the things that they've not been restrained from doing, what do they want to be up to that that uh, this oversight is supposedly getting in the way? That was a shocking. Uh update that you sent through about this spy agency. I think they, as I think you even said that they cited uh, the America's National Security Agency and uh, the GCHQ in Britain, but the, the, the uh, NSA in the United States as a good example of what they wanted to be. And I'm just like, are uh, since it's working out so well here uh, with uh, all the spying and, and manipulation uh, and and actual violence that uh, these spy agencies and these deep state agencies are causing in the United States, for them to cite that as an example is, uh, like you said, either a, uh, an ignorance and an and in, ineptitude or it's just this bold statement of will where we dare you to 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 try to stop us because the yeah, logic I, there is ridiculous. If you've got an organization that as recently as 2007 is covering up its Nazi past, pointing at the NSA and the FBI and the, the, the American intelligence services and saying, we want to be like that and do what they do. Yeah, that's super worrying. And 
I mean, you look, I mean, this is part of the reason why we come back to this a few times. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote a lot about, uh, you know, German, after World War II, Nazis going underground. And I, I think you know, during the 60s, the 70s, maybe, that you you had people kind of writing that off saying, well, that's a bit extreme. You know, there was evidence of this happening, but still, well, that sounds a bit, a, a bit extreme. You get to now and we've had evidence after evidence after evidence showing that in government department after department it happened. But one of the biggest places that it happened is within the German Secret Service, where it was literally built and set up by an ex-Nazi who saw the writing on the wall in 1944 and kind of prepared to go underground. And all this history is really well documented. Uh, so it's a really fascinating and specific look at uh, at what Mr. Armstrong said. Nobody denies that the, that the German intelligence service were built by a bunch of ex-Nazis or former Nazis. Nobody seems to want to ask the question, well, what does that say about the intelligence service today? And then, of course, you bring in Bible prophecy about the revival of, of Germany and, and of this Nazi spirit in Germany. You have a very worrying picture. That book, uh, The Unholy Trinity, was recommended to some of us recently and uh, gets into some of that. Uh, my wife checked it out from the Herbert W. Armstrong College Library here, and so we've been talking about it. Uh, your article as well in the in the upcoming Trumpet about uh, – this the the more muscular Europe that's developing and and how it's uh, we often think of Europeans as soft and sophisticated, uh, but you're you're making the point there that in that article that uh, that's really changing rapidly. And I thought the really good point that you made is that it's not a transformation so much as it is a dropping of the mask. I mean, look at Europe through history. It is it isn't soft and sophisticated, so to speak, when it gets power, when it has a you know a security apparatus, whether it's in the medieval times or now, uh, that is powerful and that can force people to bend to the will of the of the national government or the king or what what have you uh it's a powerful powerful uh continent and uh you you've got this uh this other article about europe about the eu that i think is really fascinating and it talks about that real europe yeah that is it ties right in with the my main story today it really kind of takes one aspect from that trumpet print article that we saw even more evidence for now that the trumpet has gone to print. That's always the way with some <laughs> right. of these events. It's happening so quickly uh, because one of the points, you know, that point focused on a number of significant shifts within European politics. But one of those shifts is this attitude of anti-European parties where you, you, you kind of have these far right or these fringe parties within Europe, like the alternative for Deutschland or the brothers of Italy uh, you know, they're popping up in every single country. And for a long time, they were very much loners. You know, burn the rest of the EU down. I want my country to be great. And they were kind of more about quitting the EU. What you're seeing now that's fascinating is these groups start to work together and really exert their influence at a European level. And you're seeing their aims start to shift from burning down the EU to radically changing the EU and making it in the image that uh, that they want. And so you had the, just just over, a, or it would be nearly two weeks ago now, the Alternative for Deutschland, the second most popular party in Germany, this upstart fringe right party, far right party, they had their party conference. And they invited, kind of one of the key speakers was the leader of the far right revival party in Bulgaria. 
They're very similar to the AFD, shot up from nowhere. They're now the third most popular party in the Bulgarian parliament. They're a significant force. And I thought that this leader's comments uh, in Germany at the... Well, first of all, his presence there is remarkable. You're seeing all of these different groups working together. But his comments were fascinating. So he said, he'd said, Germans, it is high time that your country takes its rightful place as a great power and not just in Europe. He said that for more than a thousand years, Germany has been a cornerstone of Europe. Uh, he talked about how Bulgaria and Germany have been allied twice in war, which that's World War One and World War Two. Um, it's a little odd to stand up there and advertise. Yes, we were both the bad guys in World War Two. But that's what he was doing. The uh, Kaiser and the Nazis. <laughs> why yeah. Why harken back to that? The uh, BND is destroying those documents. But to see a fringe right party from Bulgaria coming and saying, Germany, we want you to be more powerful. You need to be a, you know, not just a European power. You need to be a global superpower. And we in Bulgaria are, are right behind you. We want that to happen. You know, that's a really I think that's a pretty radical shift. And to start to have then some of these fringe right parties not just work together to take over the EU, but all working to support German dominance of the European Union, that that's a pretty big deal. And even if you think about it historically, like most of Bulgaria, I guess, was an exception as friends with Germany. But a lot of these Eastern European countries really don't like Germany because of World War Two, because of a lot of things that happened but they also the only reason they exist as entities is because they're at one point part of the habsburg empire or the holy roman empire whatever and they sort of popped out of nowhere as independent entities and they don't really have natural borders they don't really have a natural long tradition of government and of uh and stable uh, society they're meant to be provinces in an empire a lot of these countries are landlocked or they don't have good ports in the first place a lot of these countries don't have say that much to offer economically unless if they're connected to a larger economy like germany which oftentimes was the larger economy they were connected you could see in in a sense these countries are waking up to the fact that if they want to be great they need germany to be great oh uh, yeah i think it's a it's germany's empire in eastern europe right now i think is a really fascinating subject like you know, economically, I think you could argue they are already integrated into into the kind of a broader German empire. I think it's also interesting. I mean, yeah, there are a lot in Eastern Europe that were against Germany in World War II. You look at some of the, the key countries that Germany's focused on bringing into the European Union, though, and it's Bulgaria, it's Hungary, it's Romania, it's Croatia. These are all very long-term German allies, and they have all bolstered Germany. They all vote Germany's way now that they're in the European Union. And then you look at basically anybody that's downstream of Germany or, or on, along the Danube, you look at who their largest businesses are, and it's just about without fail German companies or the local, you know, it's like Skoda, which is owned by VW and these kind of things. They're thoroughly integrated with Germany's economy. You know, even if they wanted to, they couldn't really oppose Germany much. So I think in terms of cheerleading for Germany to dominate the EU, Eastern Europe and a lot, I mean, Poland's a bit of an exception. They've got a much more complicated relationship there. Um, but it's Eastern Europe that's doing a lot of that cheerleading. Well, those bombshell quotes, I mean, take your place as a great power and not just in Europe. And this EU must die for the real Europe to live. They came out too late for you to include in your article. Uh, go to the trumpet.com uh, slash subscribe and uh, make sure you get that article. 
And that would have been perfect. But the good news, Mr. Palmer, for you, and also the bad news with all the other demands on our time getting the curriculum ready for the school year, is that the next trumpet is due. Uh, draft one articles are due on Tuesday. So maybe you can find a way to work those <laughs> those in. Uh, but where is it that you take the trumpet reader in your conclusion? Where where does this all lead? I would, I would probably point to our trends article, why the trumpet watches the rise of a German strongman. I think those trends articles, we tried to be, you know, if, if you're a fairly new listener to this show and um, we talk about a lot of prophecies on this show and a lot of scriptures in the Bible and probably quite a few scriptures you're not used to hearing about. It's not really in world news, probably not even in church or anything like that. Um, and you know, we've been talking about them on this show for years. We're pretty familiar with them, but it can be pretty, pretty, um, it could be pretty overwhelming. I think what we try to do in those trends articles is really explain and prove what we're talking about from basics and from first principles. So that if you don't know anything about this, you can understand what these scriptures are saying and apply them to world news. And so uh, this one, why the German, why uh, why the trumpet watches the rise of a German strongman? It shows why we're watching for a strongman to lead Europe, why we're expecting that strongman to come specifically from Germany, uh, and takes you through those scriptures to to back that up. Takes you through how Herbert W. Armstrong forecasts so much of this, and like we were saying earlier, how so many of those forecasts have already been proven true. You know, you can you can see that so many parts of these prophecies have happened already. Uh, this is a great way of making the Bible come alive and proving it true. It can give you solid confidence and faith in what is written here so that you could know, well, the rest of these prophecies are also going to come true. So it explains those prophecies. And then, of course, all of these trends articles are going to tell you, put it in the overall big picture of why this is happening uh, and the hope beyond it. So they can be a, a great way to kind of get caught up on some of these different uh, different trends and scriptures that we talk about. That's right. The big picture, the first principles, the the logic behind it, the the foundational prophecies. Uh, those articles at uh, thetrumpet.com slash trends are are very, very good for that. If you, if you feel like there's a lot of names and events and, and so forth flying, flying around and it's hard to keep up, those are maybe the best place to start uh, as far as understanding, in this case, why the trumpet watches the rise of a German strongman. Thanks for listening to Trumpet Hour. We'll be right back. So welcome to our final segment this hour as we complete the week in review. I'm Philip Nice. I'm with Andrew Miller, Jeremiah Jacques, and Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. And we want to get into a discussion that involves the United States and Canada and Australia and Europe and Asia and the globe. It's something you've probably thought about uh, when it's in the headlines and then put it aside, um, then thought about it again when it came back in the headlines, then, then put it aside. And now it's back in the headlines, environmental disasters. Andrew Miller, what's the latest on environmental disasters this week? Yeah, the state of Hawaii was hit by its worst natural disaster in its recorded history. Uh, on Tuesday, a fast-moving wildfire uh, unleashed destruction on the resort town of Lahana on the island of Maui uh, that's going to take years to build, to rebuild and billions of dollars in damage. 
uh, this um, this wildfire. It's killed at least 55 people um, already. Uh, and some fires on the island are still burning. Um, there's no uh, consensus yet on what started the fire, whether it was um, lightning strike, arsonist, uh, or some other um, uh, some other way to ignite that spark. But uh, it was really fueled by 60 mile an hour winds and just uh, historically dry conditions. Hawaii's, <laughs> you don't normally associate Hawaii as a dry place and, uh, and probably compared to a lot of places, <laughs> other places it isn't. But it has, but it's been dry for Hawaii. It's uh, been in a, a long drought, uh, a lot of dry wood and stuff like that. And so it somehow it caught flame uh, and um, Nick City area just really killed uh, dozens of people and cost uh, billions of dollars in damage. I just wanted to jump in really quickly. Andrew just mentioned the winds that were uh, part of this, you know, what made this such a catastrophe. And what was really so catastrophic about the whole situation is that it was not just a raging wildfire, but also a hurricane that hit at the same time. And, and that hurricane made the fire just tear through the island like a blowtorch. Um, since the extremely strong winds from that passing hurricane, it was Hurricane Dora, and they were just fueling those flames. So it was uh, stunning, I think, to see the footage of what was happening here. A lot of people were jumping into the ocean, even from up on steep embankments, just to escape the flames, because it was all spreading so much faster than anyone anticipated or understood. Um, and the, the governor of Hawaii, he actually said it looks like a massive bomb went off on this town. And, and if you look at the footage of this, I think that is accurate. It's just, it's surreal to see it. You talk about that footage. I saw something that it's going to take a while to forget. It was from in, it was a, a video from inside a car, and this car is driving through, and there's smoke everywhere, but all the smoke is orange. Like it is, it is. There's flames. They're trying to 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 uh, you know part their way through the the road or whatever it is they're on, and uh, you see other cars off to the side. You see hazard lights flashing. You can barely make out the outline of buildings. Some of them seem like they've already burned. And it's just the shell of the building, but it to the right down on the ground or the road, there is a woman laying there, not moving. And, and you just see it for a second as the, as the camera phone or whatever, like pans that way and then pans back toward out the front windshield. And they just drove by like it was, I mean, for that person and in that instance, I mean, that people were, were commenting about the lack of humanity in, in that moment. Um, but those are the tragedies that for that person, I mean, it's, it's, and for what is it more than 50 other people, it's, it's, it's over. And, uh, so it's a, it's a terrible thing. And, and you have to wonder like, why, why is it that something like this happens? Why is it that it happens at the same time as a hurricane? I mean, is there a reason or a lesson or something to learn or is this just all the randomness of uh, the evolutionary system and even specifically with hawaii it, it makes it even more tragic when the fact that it's maui it's an island like uh, obviously there's a few other islands nearby but it's in the middle of the pacific nowhere near any major landmass. it's um obviously it didn't the fires didn't affect the whole island but it's like where are you going to run 
like we like we were talking about some people were trying to run into the ocean uh we often talk about on this program natural disasters especially those that hit in the united states we keep talking about record-breaking tornadoes in america's heartland or hurricanes on in florida or that kind of thing you think the one place you'd be able to go to to escape that is the one state that's separate from every other one which is hawaii like all the way almost on the other side of the world and yet not only does disaster make it there but once once it gets there i mean where are people supposed to go it's not like you just get in your car and drive down the highway and escape it you're trapped rescue is going to be extremely hard to go and get and if the other islands obviously are in this kind of drought too obviously thankfully nothing's happened on them yet but what's some stopping another fire from hitting oahu or hitting the big island or starting to plow through some of these more heavily populated areas where are they going to go whenever you have these kind of news stories whenever you have natural disasters causing a lot of deaths whenever you have unusual weather events yeah, there are always two questions that, that, that come up. The first is, is this global warming? And you always get a, that, that's been the, the, the big story plastered across a lot of the mainstream media, really for months uh, this summer, that, that we've got global warming in Europe. We've had a few records set with European temperatures. And now you've got some of these wildfires. There's lots of discussion. Is wildfire, is it caused by hotter than usual weather? And then the other question, especially when you have large numbers of people dying, is, well, where is God? You know, what did these people do so that they deserve to die? Especially where, you know, it's a fire or you, you look back. I mean, the big occasion this came up was the Boxing Day tsunami years and years ago. And I think whenever I'm like, look up, go back and look up how many people died in that, I'm blown away. It was a huge number. Um, I think it might have been a quarter of a million. Every time I guess a number off the top of my head, it's too small. Uh, but you have these events, and so that's, that is, of course, the question. Well, how does, if, if there's a God, how does a loving God allow this to happen? And it's, this is such, these, both these questions are so important. We have a whole booklet going through the answer, and uh, we're not going to be able to explain every detail of that today. It's called Why Natural Disasters? And this goes through a number of important points. I mean, one is that the the Bible does say that God is behind natural disasters, that he can cause them, that he allows them, uh, and that he, want, you know, he uses this to correct people and to wake them up. The book shows that this is right, this, how this comes from a loving God, how this comes from God's love, a God that wants the world to live in a way of life that's going to make them happy and that's going to lead, lead to prosperity and abundance, but you, know, you have cause and effects. And if we're living a way that's going to cause us to be miserable, God can't mag magically make us happy. You know, if we're going to be doing things that are making ourselves and, and others miserable, miserable, there's no you know, snap of the fingers that, that solves that. The solution is to fix our behavior. And so God corrects and he punishes in love, uh, and even and there's hope even for those that are casualties of of these events. And so this book talks about that and then also deals with global warming, where I think this is one of this is one of the most powerful deceptions out there today, where instead of looking and saying, okay, God says he he corrects through uh, through weather disasters, he prophesied that if there were obedience, 
while we'd be blessed with abundant harvests and plenty of rain, and if disobedient, then we'd be cursed with droughts and weather disasters. What are we doing wrong? What do we need to change? How can we go back to having blessings? Instead of people asking that, nobody's asking that question. It's more, well, we have angered the Mother Earth Goddess. What can we do about it? And then this introduces, of course, then a whole load of propaganda into the whole thing. You're, you're getting these people, I think you get the news media twisting things to try and blame more of this on heat and just higher ambient temperatures, even though evidence isn't there to support that. And, and then the whole thing kind of gets propagandized and politicized. And we get bogged down in all of these discussions instead of being pointed back to God. And that's really what all of this is designed to do. Uh, God works with us through the weather. I think we've, we've have even had trumpet print covers on this. I remember an article but in particular 10, 15 years ago or so by, um, by uh, Mr. Brad McDonald that just talked about the way that, that the weather is almost a broadcasting station from God. This should be something that points us to God and the global warming lie or the climate change lie so that any unusual weather can be, can be kind of brought into this hypothesis uh, is really dangerous because it points us away from God. It gets in the way of that. So this is a really important subject to ask, and I am aware that what I've just said does not answer every single question about this. Uh, it's the it's a very brief summary, but that's where our book, Why Natural Disasters, you know, it, it really does. Uh, there's a, there's an excellent chapter in there that just talks about well, why does a loving God allow suffering? All these kind of things. It does get into in in a lot more detail. It, th that's right. If you face something wildly beyond your control, if you face something that is killing people indiscriminately, uh, and you facing you're facing something that's beyond your ability to understand, you have kind of two logical choices one is is this is all random and it all you know everything evolved this way and this this just you know whatever uh let's look to uh socialism now <laughs> you know or the climate change uh uh agenda uh or who created this who has power beyond uh the winds and and the flames and the uh, tectonic plates and who is he what is he really like why would he be letting this happen? Uh, so it should drive you in one of those two directions. We see which direction most people are being driven in. But uh, I, th I, I would put to you that one is more logical, much more logical than the other. And like you said, uh, our listeners should look at why natural disasters. So that is your one hour review for this week, August 11th, 2023. Iran and the U.S. prisoners for cash, Barack Obama's January 5th conspiracy, Russia rewriting history, and the EU must die for the real Europe to live. And indeed, why natural disasters? As always, we look forward to seeing what's in the inbox, letters at thetrumpet.com. What have you noticed about the weather? What do you think about environmental disasters occurring and why? Email us, letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. Thank you to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And thank you again for listening to The Weekend Review. We look forward to being back with you on Wednesday with Jeremiah Jacques hosting the next edition of Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.